how I got here. The inside stories of startups and innovation and travel and transportation with your hosts, FocusWire's Kevin May and Mozio's David Litwack. Thanks for joining us today for How I Got Here, FocusWire and Mozio's weekly podcast about travel and transportation startups. Today, we're joined by Rob Wiesenthal of Blade. Blade is the first digitally powered short distance aviation company. They, they run helicopters from Manhattan to the airport, Manhattan to the Hamptons, seasonal scheduled jet services, and more. And I'll let Rob explain more what that is. But Rob, we like to start every, uh, every one of these podcasts with the same exact question, which is for you to explain to us how you got here. Sure. Thank you for having me. Uh, I've uh, had a pretty long career starting uh, actually uh, going back to when I was 19 in investment banking, uh, where ultimately I was at a company called First Boston and uh, ran what was then called digital media and entertainment uh, and joined Sony Corporation uh, in 2000 as chief strategy officer and chief financial officer. Um, And when I was at Sony, they had an aviation department that reported to me. And uh, within that aviation department, uh, they had a bunch of uh, uh, jets because it was a global company. You know, I think one in Europe, two in the US and one in Japan. Uh, And they also had one helicopter. Um, And what what was interesting to me because uh, private aviation was something that I never really knew anything about or had any, any interest in, uh, in you know, my, my, in my prior life. Um, what was interesting to me was the lack of branding, the lack of use of technology, specifically mobile, um, the lack of an emotional connection between one, one particular, any kind of company in that space and the consumer, um, the lack of customer centricity, especially with respect to what they now call FBOs, uh, which are these terminals that you would leave at, uh, where you go into a terminal and it's kind of elementary school cafeteria lighting, a popcorn machine, and uh, people behind a desk who can try to find where your plane is and some, you know, secondhand, you know, uh, furniture, or at least it would look like secondhand furniture. It, it, for, the, for the amount of money that was being spent in this industry, it felt very B2B, you know, very business to business, the marketing, the advertising, all that. And then you look at a plane and a plane would have tail numbers and no brands on it. There were no, it, it. A lot of it just didn't make sense to me. And the thing that really kind of tilted me to saying, you know, I feel like there's a business here uh, was the fact on the, on the helicopter side, it would cost to go 90 miles. Now, the average utilization of a helicopter is 1.7 people, even though they usually have six seats. So I really didn't understand why you couldn't aggregate over mobile technology, people going to common destinations at near common times. Um, And that really was the impetus for Blade. And then also to take away the intimidation factor uh, by getting that price lower because it was very intimidating in the sense that like you didn't know really who to call and it would seem like something that was really above you and was for CEOs and was not really a consumer product. Um, 
And then how do you market that and create something that is really enjoyable? Because even though we cut the price down to the time to, you know, $595 to go 90, to go to the, you know, go 90 miles. And ultimately last year do $195 to fly to the airport or $95 with an airport pass. Uh, we kind of broke the Uber SUV barrier in pricing. Um, you know, we, this was still a lot of money to the consumer and how could you give them an experience that resonated with them? And that had it. And that's why we started building our own lounges. We embraced mobile technology for booking. Uh, and we taught customer service to not only our people, but to pilots. Uh, and we learned about aggregation. And we, and we spent a lot of time by dealing with redundancy to make sure that missions go as smoothly as possible. And that really was the, you know, kind of the genesis of Blade. Thanks ever so much for joining us, Rob. It's, uh, we're really delighted that you're sharing the time with us. Um, I'm interested. It's a it's a it's a fair leap to go from, dare I say it, the safe corporate world of Sony and entertainment and the music business to launching a, a, a transportation or being involved in a land, you know transportation startup. What was your own kind of personal thinking about that as a as a you know going from a a corporate exec to an entrepreneur? How did you kind of get yourself into that zone? Well, I guess there were two two things. There are two questions that I had to answer or two things that I really was driven to explore. Um, number one, in corporate jobs, there's an old line that the status quo doesn't like to lose its status. <laughs> uh, and which means that the way large corporations are organized and the way people are compensated, you know, you're not very rarely are you rewarded to take any kind of measured or calculated risks in terms of new products, new ideas, transactions, things of that nature. Yeah. Um, then also it's to the benefit of the large organization, or at least in, in the, there's their perception that it's the benefit to the large organization to keep people in their lanes. So if you're a numbers guy, you don't understand marketing, you're a marketing guy, you don't understand numbers stay in your lane, stay in your lane, stay in your lane. And I felt that the time when I decided, you know, I incubated Blade when I was still a, I was a chief operating officer at Warner Music. Um, when I decided to join full time, you know, I felt, saw the opportunity to use muscles that I really wasn't given the opportunity to, to, do, uh, to use in my former lives. And namely, you know, building brands, creating an emotional connection between consumers and your product um, and to be able to make decisions uh, quickly and with as minimal bureaucracy as possible. Uh, and, you know, I actually, am I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm third generation entertainment to a certain extent. My son is fourth. Uh, and one thing about, you no, know, I'm an spending a lot of time in entertainment you know, despite the fact that I was, you know, more financially oriented, business oriented, you know, the story, you know, a, a good song or a good film or a good TV show, you know, it's about the story. Uh, and a great story is what you, we tell stories in entertainment, whether it's a song or it's a, a film or a TV show. And I wanted to tell a story in a customer journey. So from the moment you first see a Blade ad 
to when you walk into one of our lounges, to the way our staff is dressed, to the way they greet you, you know, to the way you experience on board, say, Blade One to Miami, um, you know, for a long haul flight, um, to what happens when you land. You know, it was about telling, creating a narrative that resonated with consumers, that created these unique moments that people would share. Because what I noticed was, in especially when you think about the largest part of non-commercial aviation, kind of private jets, you know, no one ever says, oh, you know, I chartered a jet with Atlas. I had an Atlas jet charter last week. You know what I mean? They had a jet. But we turned Blade into a verb. You, you Blade it to Nantucket, you Blade to the airport, and it meant something to people. And, and that was really exciting. And I think it was about telling that story and controlling the environment from the marketing side, the moment of booking, to the customer experience in the lounge, to whatever we can do in flight, to what we can do at landing. And what we do in terms of what we call recovery, which is when something goes wrong, uh, and then how we can do use events and activations uh, in social media to kind of galvanize um, that customer base to come in again and make it something have, people have an affinity with the brand and use us versus someone else. Because if you want to think about in this world where everything gets commoditized, the one thing that is difficult to commoditize is brands. Um, and to build your brand in our view is not only telling a story, but also to have sustained product differentiation, yeah. sustained product differentiation. So along this journey, we're constantly thinking about what can we do to, to provide our customer with sustained product differentiation, because you can get a jet from anywhere. You can get a helicopter from almost anywhere. You get a seaplane from almost anywhere. So we have to do something different. Otherwise it's a race to the bottom. It's, going on Expedia and sort, right? Lowest to highest, right? <laughs> so what, and, and so, you know, if you think about, I'm, I'm looking at your notes here, I'm allowed to use the word OTA. <laughs> it says here. Um, so um, if you think about it, you know, when, we, when I thought about this, this wonderful opportunity to create a brand in aviation, we clearly were not gonna say, have the capital or take the risk of building a giant airline but short distance aviation felt like it was an arena in which a limited amount of capital and a lot of elbow grease, we could really be competitive. Um, and so, but I do, I did think about the fact that when someone goes on Expedia and says they want to go from New York to Miami, they're sorting lowest to highest and maybe by class of service and Depending, maybe out if you if I leave outside frequent flyer miles, they're not. I really, I'm I'm not convinced they really care that much if it's Delta or American or United or someone else. For yeah, I, I, it's interesting what you say, Rob, about um, you know large corporations being you know to paraphrase you a little bit, you know, risk averse. I mean, you took this. Uh, jump maybe jumps the wrong word but you know you took this kind of uh, change in your career in your mid-40s for fear of I was 49 on, yeah 40. for fear of looking at your age on wikipedia here but uh, you know that's that's kind of different to many of the entrepreneurs who listen to this podcast who are late teens mostly in their 20s I mean how did, was there anything that you had to do with regards to thinking about 
I'm going into a risky environment with starting a new business or did you feel supremely confident in the product? Which it certainly sounds like you do, but it is, it is quite a leap for someone in their late forties. No, it was definitely a jump. And I think that there are two things, you know, in fact, there was an article, I guess I was, I was interviewed, I don't know how long ago where I was somehow the title ended up saying that, uh, that uh, employees at startups are not trained properly or something. I, I don't know what it was. It was a horrible <laughs> thing. Uh, but I think that I would not trade my early career for anything. The level, I mean, in one of the things we decided to do when we started Blade, because I have people here from Microsoft, from big law firms. I do have people from big companies here. Um, you know, yeah. the how do we take the best of those big companies and leave behind the things that really we found detrimental to our, you know, if not our career progression or how much we enjoy our jobs. So let's, we want to try to limit bureaucracy, have a little bit more of a radical transparency type view to reduce politics. Um, but also, when it comes to financial discipline and analysis, that was something where these big companies were great at, the companies I yeah. had, right? Um, you know, risk management, financial planning and analysis um, were all great skills. How to write, how to stay organized, how to project manage. Those are all skills that you have in a big company. So to be able to take those skills and be in an environment where you can make a decision where are, there aren't nine layers of decision-making and where the safe answers always do nothing. You're right. Right? Uh, that was the big opportunity. Like, that's what we wanted to create. Um, it, so I felt very blessed to have that experience corporately and have the maturity to see things, to do lots of transactions and buy companies and integrate them, some deals that went well and some deals that didn't go well. And, to, and at 49, I felt that was really my last chance to, if I was either going to do it now, or I was not going to do it. Right. And I, 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 and I felt that was my moment. Uh, and yes, I, it, it was, it was absolutely terrifying. Uh, and it's a different type of pain, uh, and stress. Uh, it is not all roses. Um, and also I was lucky enough to have a long enough career where I felt that I had, um, enough financial ballast to really work on this for a very long time, you know, at, you know, let's say called realistically at a fraction what of <laughs> what I was earning before, right. With the idea of creating wealth for our employees and our investors. Yeah. Okay. Great. Derek? Oh, I wanted to turn a little bit more to the kind of the business model. So I'm from California. And so the uh, kind of uh, first urban aviation company I heard of was actually Surfair about, I guess, five or six years ago. And um, I'm not fully aware of exactly how that turned out, but I don't think it turned out as well as they were hoping. <laughs> and um, I, I think that um, there's got to be a lot of behind the scenes reasons for, you know, why would a subscription work or not? Or what, what airports do you fly into regional versus, you know, international versus local helicopter? Could you give us a little bit of insight into how you thought about this from a really nitty gritty business perspective or how to make it actually like that the, the, the fixed costs would line up with the amount of you know, money you would need to charge for this? Sure. It's a great, great question. And 
very interesting comparable because, um, and I'll use some analogies from the entertainment business, which really, there, and there are a lot of them, believe it or not, uh, which is kind of amazing to me that I see from the business that I was in and the business we're in today, uh, corollaries. Um, so if you take a subscription model like Netflix, you know, you're paying your 10 bucks a month or whatever it is, you watch Spider-Man 20 times, you know, outside bandwidth, which is negligible. Sony, who owns that movie, is not getting paid 20 times. It's not, it's not costing Netflix any more money the first time you see it than the 20th time. So, because they're, they're buying the content on long-term deals. Okay, so there's no incremental cost of watching a lot of content or very little content. Okay, they, they own it and they can play it as much as they want. Every time you step in a plane or an aircraft, that costs a lot of money. So the subscription model when it comes to aviation, say surf air, you know, you're essentially inviting the hungriest people to the all-you-can-eat buffet. Um, and they're, they are going to eat a lot. Uh, and unlike Netflix, every time that plane gets in the air, it's costing you money. Um, so I didn't want to be in a situation where I had to hope that people didn't fly us. Because if you think about a subscription model with aviation, you're really guessing on breakage. It's almost like uh, the health club, you can call it, the, you know, it's not even, not even the health club model because, you know, that's more of a capacity issue. Um, you know, it's almost like, you know, discounted gift certificates to something and you hope they expire or people lose them or whatever. Like that's not the way I wanted people to fly. Uh, and we wanted to earn their trust every time and not have them be beholden. So we felt the best model, at least for us, was, you know, pretty simple. We're going to come up with a fair price to, to for you to fly. Uh, and we're going to reduce friction in your travel and cut your travel time by a, by a lot and give you an enjoy, you know, a really enjoyable experience. Uh, but it's going to be done, you know, a la carte. You know, you pay us, we fly you. It's a pretty simple. The subscription models, um, you know, really didn't seem to make sense for us. And also, unlike Surfair, where there are a lot of long-term leases, we don't own any aircraft. We don't lease any aircraft. What we do is we have long-term relationships with operators where they decide to come on our platform. And the reason they come on our platform, you know, once, and once they're approved for our platform based on safety and diligence type of equipment, pilot hours, you know, their backgrounds on, 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 with respect to the FAA in terms of if there are any incidents or the records, they have to use our, um, our operator dashboard in terms of logistics, which is a big part of our technology platform, both can, you know, we kind of go from consumer to cockpit. Uh, they no longer really have to have marketing departments because we're marketing the flights. They don't need customer service because if you fly with Blade and you're upset because your flight was delayed for weather, they don't get the phone call. Blade gets the weather, gets the phone call. If you dispute something in your credit card, it was charged us, we gotta do it. So all of a sudden we found them, they're getting rid of their customer service departments, they're getting rid of their, of their, of their uh, marketing departments, their accounting departments are going down because we pay in five days and there's an accounting dashboard. So all of a sudden there was a reason to let us have a lower hourly fee than they would generate on retail. 
because we were giving them certainty of volume and we were giving them I'm giving them large volume and uh, some certainty uh, because, you know, the track record that we had uh, and putting money behind, you know, behind it to get people to fly. And so in the beginning, it's interesting, not unlike the days of Apple and iTunes, a lot of the um, companies, you know, seaplane companies and helicopter companies and other, you know, turboprop companies said, let's get together and build our own app. Why is Blade getting this business? We can do that. And I remember being at Sony when we got Universal and Warner's and we decided to start something called Press Play as a competitor to iTunes. And, you know, what you found is it took someone on the outside to bring people together. You know, before Netflix, it was something called Movie, movie Fly that all this, the movie studios got involved with. Didn't really go anywhere either. And it's very difficult for incumbents to create a platform. It takes someone on the outside to create that platform. And I think that was part of, you know, going back to, you know, what do you, you know, what did you learn in your day job or how does this relate to what you did? That's something that I saw very quickly, which was how do you get these providers on your side, show them that you're providing them value uh, and be the one to bring everybody together. Because if, if Blade owned helicopters, I'll tell you right now, Blade would be a helicopter company. It wouldn't, wouldn't be Blade. So that's funny. Um, so, you know, Mozio operates in the ground transportation world, and we've done a lot of uh, analysis of, you know, what made Uber succeed. And what I found fascinating about Uber was they knew exactly how deep to go. It wasn't just we're going to plug into any API. It, it was they actually said, we're going to have our own drivers, but we're also not going to own the vehicles. And that's where they drew the line. And it sounds like you drew a fairly similar line where you're like, you know, we're going to have the lounges, we're going to have all these different things, but you drew the line at kind of, you know, actually owning and, and, and flying the, the helicopters. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, I, I, think, I think it is. But I think what's easier for us um, than, say, an Uber, uh, but, you know, there are obviously costs to that, which is you can see the incredible massive scale that they've enjoyed, is that we can insist on a consistency of service, okay? Uh, because... The, pe the pilots who fly you are employees. They have health insurance, the full-time employees. They not only have to file, file FA guidelines, they have to file guidelines of their operating, they have to file guidelines of Blade. So the quality of the experience that you get, the knowledge of the pilot, the experience, the cleanliness of the aircraft, the hours in the aircraft, the type of aircraft are going to be consistent. Whereas if you get into a ride-sharing car, Drivers can have different senses of direction, different command of the English language, different types of cleanliness, hygiene, all these issues. There's so much variation. But because instead of having hundreds of thousands of drivers, we have 29 operators. And so what we need to do is harmonize 29 operators who then have full-time employees and you know, are not members of the gig economy. It's, it's not like someone you know, all of a sudden, you know, they're at their, you know, it's the weekend and say, you know, I want to make a couple bucks and they take their cell phone, put a suction cup in their helicopter and do a couple runs for Blake. You know, that's not the way it works. These are full-time salaried, you know, highly paid, you know, pilots. And the same thing with the, with the, the people at the operators as well. 
So that actually brings me to, I think, a, a topical story. I'm, I'm sure, you know, Kobe Bryant's death, you know, uh, brought a lot of scrutiny around, you know, helicopter standards and stuff. And it, it, I read something, uh, the thing that stood out to me, despite being a, a lifelong Lakers fan and it being just a tragic event overall, was that, uh, you know, it, apparently the pilot wasn't trained properly for uh fog or something like that. I vaguely remember this. And how do you think about community you know, safety standards here among those 29 operators? Yeah. So I'll sit, you know, in the Kobe Bryant situation, you know, he was an IFR pilot, but his company uh, did not have the conformity for that aircraft for instruments. So he was capable of flying under instruments. He was not flying under instruments. And I would say, you know, we operate in LA, our, pl- our, our helicopters were grounded, LAPD's uh, helicopters were grounded. We would deem that not flyable weather. He chose to fly. Um, you know, clearly it, the result was tragic. And, you know, uh, they, the minimums for flying without uh, instruments or even with instruments were not met. Uh, so it really, there was a decision made whether it was something where a pilot was pressured, uh, whether it was actual pressure by, uh, by because of passengers or the pilot decided on his own, a decision was made to fly in what we view as unflyable weather. So it was not, a me- I think it's pretty clear that it was not a mechanical issue, um, but, you know, was a result of the decision that was made uh, to fly at all. Uh, but going back to your question about, you know, safety, you know, I think that we like to hold ourselves to a higher standard uh, than uh, the FAA uh, in terms of, you know, things like inclement weather. You know, one of the things we tell, tell passengers, you know, it's kind of very difficult. Sometimes we'll leave New York, you'll see New York, it's a sunny day today and someone wants to fly to the Jersey coast and it's zero visibility over there. And they say, well, it looks beautiful over there. And we say, well, on the route, it's actually very bad weather. And it's very difficult sometimes for customers to see situations where their flight is canceled or delayed. But, you know, our view is that we would rather have you on the ground yelling at us about why you're not in the air than in the air yelling at us about why you're not on the ground. So, um, you know, we tend to air you know, uh, beyond in the side of caution. And one of the things we do to minimize the pressure that either a passenger will put on themselves or that our uh, uh, company executives do, we typically have a all-weather guarantee partner. You know, it's been Cadillac in the past. Uh, We've had uh, Porsche before. We've had um, uh, 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 Mercedes one year. Uh, and what that does is in the event of inclement weather, we essentially put you in a car the same way you would have gone there and that car is waiting and it goes to the airport you would have gone to and it relieves a lot of that pressure. And also uh, when it comes to things like Monday morning commutes where people have to get to the office where they really feel under a lot of pressure, we'll, we're likely to cancel flights the night before uh, and, you know, make a judgment, even though you really can't, you know, weather is dynamic and you really can't make a judgment before that. So, you know, weather is something that we can make our own decisions about to fly or not fly, but the ultimate, you know, in terms of once an operator has made that decision. So 
we are not an operator. So the ultimate decision maker is a pilot about whether or not he accepts a mission. Now, Blade can say, we still don't feel comfortable and not fly, but we can never, nor would we ever, choose to fl fly or put a pilot in a situation where they felt uncomfortable because ultimately they have to make the final call. Uh, and then when it comes to other types of safety, like mechanical safety, you know, uh, everything from hours on the aircraft to pilot hours uh, to, you know, maintenance records in the past, these are all things that we, you know, look towards to make, you know, we have a head of safety uh, who's former military and Homeland Security who does audits on a quarterly basis of our operators. Um, and these are all things that go into our alchemy about whether to continue a relationship. And there are also things that are not safety, but give visual cues of safety. So sometimes you, you could go on an aircraft, a small plane, and there's weather stripping that seems to be falling out or a tear in the seat. And those are bad visual cues for customers because someone's saying, well, they won't take care of that tear in the seat or I hear wind coming from this door because the weather stripping is falling apart. What's happening in terms of the mechanicals of the aircraft? So sometimes we'll pull a tail number out of a fleet and say, we're not using this aircraft because on our standards, it's even though it's flyable and it's safe, it's too old. It needs to be refurbished, especially from a passenger perspective. And so we very, we're very sensitive to visual cues that lead people to thinking about safety, even though it may not have a direct impact on it. Yeah, it's, I'm, I'm glad that David brought up the, uh, the, the, the Uber comparisons. You know, many of the entrepreneurs tuning in today will, will note those comparisons. You know, you're an Uber asset light businesses you know you are essentially technology companies but the 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 investment that you've both taken are at polar ends of the the spectrum you know uber was 8.1 billion yourselves according to crunchbase is 44 million i mean the, the the flippant question is what could you do with 8.1 billion but i suppose the more the, the more the more interesting question perhaps is you know why why are they so different? I mean, what, what's the difference in the in the process around mass investment that they've been, that they took on before they listed, and your kind of um, arguably more modest efforts? Yeah, I think that there are a couple of things. Um, number one, there's I don't tell you there's a whole menagerie of, for lack of a better term, of companies that you're well aware of, a certain vintage, where the VC community. Um, help them basically achieve scale at all costs, right? I mean, that's fact. You know, winner take all, scale at all costs. Um, you know, I have a financial background. The, the idea of taking on cap is so much capital and then using it and having that be the basis for your investment and having that have your early investors have to exceed that or your employees in terms of your capital stack. You know, that, that seemed, you know, seems extremely you know, risky and not very lucrative, you know what I mean, to many of the people lower down in the stack, especially with common stock. Uh, but also, you know, there's, I was told I'm allowed to curse, and, you know, in the world of software, there's this line, fuck it, ship it, if you remember that line. There's no fuck it, ship it in aviation. You know, we put souls in the air every day. So the idea of growth at all costs in aviation, you know, we wanted it to be 
on a measured basis, the fastest growing short distance aviation company out there. We fly more people in and out of city centers than any other company in the country. And I said measured growth because you can't grow in a way that provides the level of service that we want to provide, the level of safety that we want to provide, the integrity of the brand with deploying so much more money than we've already deployed. It would be, in our view, it would be irresponsible. Yeah. It, it, some might say that it's your experience in the corporate world and, you know, harking back to, you know, being in an organization that was arguably, as you said, risk averse has given you that hindsight that maybe you, growing in a more measured way is the better way. Well, I think, you know, also, but look, you know, you know, Uber's, what's Uber's market cap right now? $40 billion. I mean, I don't, something like that, 33. I'm not sure what the exact number is. I think it also goes back to this VC mentality of I'm going to throw so much capital at these companies and one of them is going to be an absolute home run. That's going to be a hundred to one return and everything else is going to be a wipeout. We don't have a, I don't have a portfolio approach. You know, I am all in on blade. Okay. All in. All right. You know, I'm don't I take, you know, a meager salary. I've been working at this now for six years, but at the same time, if you think about it, you know, our first round was at, I don't know, $22 million valuation where we come from in a more of a New York based mentality if the company, you know, ends up, you know, selling at $750 million or a billion dollars, that's called a home run. That's called a single in Silicon Valley, right? <laughs> uh, so, but, you know, our investors are perfectly fine going from $25 million to a billion or $50 million to a billion. So, you know, everything you have to take in context. Uh, and I think in the world of aviation, just because it's not going to be a trillion dollar company or a $200 billion company doesn't mean it's not going to be a great company. So I think we're very comfortable, you know, given, or, you know, what are the, what the market size is for our opportunity, how fast we have to grow, where our competition is. Uh, and luckily we're not competing with VC funded companies that much that are growth at all costs, albeit Uber was competing with us in the airport business. My understanding is they've now decided to pull out of New York and not return for at least two years. Uh, but that's just what I've been told. I don't think they haven't made any official announcement. So that was a little bit, uh, I would say, scary, or less of a word of concerning, that you had a company with all this capital that was literally offering the exact same service you were. Um, and, and that was, uh, flying from New York to the airport. Yeah. Uh, just before David takes over, just a, a point of order. It was actually three times the eight that they raised. It was 24 billion. So that's a, a mistake on my part. So that's even more money. So, yeah. And also, anyway. just, you know, we've raised 58 million, but not that it really moves yeah. the needle that much for your analysis. <laughs> <laughs> David. Yeah, no, it's funny. I, I think it's one of the biggest things I, I give entrepreneurs advice on is like, you don't like your VCs are going to encourage you to be this billion dollar, multi-billion dollar company. And if, if, you know, selling for a 15 to 20 can make you a millionaire and make you very happy and don't forget that and just make sure you know what you're getting into. But yeah. um, uh, you, you mentioned Uber there and uh, there's, you know, a, 
a lot of talk about oh, is Uber's economic model sustainable? And a lot of people, you know, who are savvy say, you know, they're basically banking on lasting it out to autonomous vehicles. And which brings me to, you know, flying cars and, and your, you know, big uh, view, uh, viewpoint on this. And, you know, you were a speaker of ours at the uh, mobility and travel conference uh, that we put on in January before all this went down uh, at the Explorers Club in New York. And I, uh, you were on a panel uh, with another helicopter company, Voom, and also with, uh, I think it's Joby or Joby Aviation uh, about, you know, kind of autonomous vehicles. And I, I'm curious how you view your, the network and the ground, the groundwork, you know, no pun intended here, <laughs> you're laying now uh, to how that's going to, uh, you know, really kick into action over the next five to 10 years when autonomous vehicles become more of a, a reality. Yeah. So since then, boom is shut down, as you probably know, um, and some others have, which hopefully, um, you know, we knew there was going to be some kind of cleansing of the system. But the way we look at, you know, listen, the name of our company is Blade Urban Air Mobility. Um, and not in, I, I think the right analogy, and I keep going back to uh, media, you know, Reed Hastings called Netflix, Netflix, despite the fact at the time he was putting DVDs in bags and sending them by mail. And that's kind of where we are right now with helicopters. So in other words, we have the technology, the strategic infrastructure, the user base and a brand. So we have the entire stack that's necessary for a VTOL. And at some point there's going to be an equipment swap where those helicopters are going to be swapped for you know, um, vehicles that are quiet, that are uh, more cost effective, uh, have, and, you know, and uh, quiet, more cost effective and have probably hopefully smaller noise, uh, noise footprints and actual physical footprints. And so the thesis we have is rather than say us investing in one vehicle and having to win against, you know, the Airbuses, the Boeings, the even Jovis of the world and William and, you know, the, the, there, I think there are 185 manufacturers right now, people trying to do um, um, uh, eVTOL that we could be in a situation where we can decide what is best for our customer and actually help define who the winners are of that race without building iron. Because that's not our core competency. You know, we're not great, you know, aer aeronautic engineers. Um, we're great at customer experience. We're great at logistics. We're great at the technology platform required for, you know, uh, to make all this happen. But leave, let's leave it to other people to decide what that right iron is in the future. But until then, let's have a profitable business using conventional aircraft as a bridge to get to eVTOL. And just to clarify for all of this, eVTOL, right, is electric vertical takeoff and landing, right? Yeah, so yeah, so call air, you can call them air taxis or yep. next generation uh, helicopters, you can also call them. How do you, so I mean, you know, Uber's big, uh, you know, thesis, right, is that they're going to establish the, you know, supposedly the network effects. And I think those network effects have been proven to not be uh, really strong uh, these days. But, um, and, but, you know, to prep for that autonomous vehicle future, how do you view, you know, expansion and, and you know, your network effects? And, and do you feel like you're creating this moat right now? Or, is, uh, or how do you even view that? Well, I, I think, you know, where, you know, really early on, we decided that you know there, in our in our in our neck of the woods in terms of aviation, the conventional wisdom was go out raise money or give an, give a presentation and show a show a, a a map of the world and put red dots in every big city and say here's my expansion plan. 
Um, you know, we believe Blade works in maybe nine cities in the world. And at the end of the day, what we thought was the most important thing was if we could be number one in the largest short distance corridor in the world, which is that Northeast New York area, mid-Atlantic, um, wow, that would be fantastic. And then we can start working on some of these tertiary things. And then when we looked at Blade One, which is our, what we call our enhanced aviation product, which is the white space between a private jet say for $15,000 to Miami and a first class seat for 800, we're sitting around 2,500. We quickly realized that the number one charter and commercial uh, jet destination or route in the world, city pair is New York, South Florida. By a factor, I mean, billions and billions of dollars. That is the most highest revenue route in the world, all right, both for commercial and for, for jets. So I said, like, let's pick this low-hanging fruit. You know, let's not do Tulsa, Chicago just right now, <laughs> okay? So I, I think that's the way we look at it. And so when, but however, when the costs come down, and the, and the noise footprint goes down, now you have an opportunity to land in more places, right? Because what's holding back landing zones is essentially noise uh, and also to a certain extent, you know, cost because you don't have the volume. So at the cost structure we have now, and we're blessed, if you think about Manhattan, the idea that Manhattan has an east side heliport, a west side heliport, a Wall Street heliport, a, a, an amphibious seaplane uh, uh, base, all with blade lounges. So you're talking about four places to land urban air vehicles in an island like Manhattan, 13 miles where you have 10 million people. That's incredible. The fact that people can have a choice east side, west side, downtown, amphibious. You know, it really is. And in fact, that where we are right now on the west side, across from Hudson Yards, where we have 50,000 people who work and live, or will soon be 50,000 people who work and live a thousand feet away from a, a, a vertiport. That is the VTAL story. That is, you know, the idea of transportation coming together to serve that population. So this was a perfect nursery to build this company and hopefully transition to a VTAL when the equipment is there. So can I just quickly one clarify, and then I know Kevin has some wrap-up questions here. It seems almost like part of your moat is these lounges, is these, uh, is almost like the the physical real estate here that you're you're planting yourself into, and you'll be able to scale up from there. Is that a correct characterization? Correct. I mean, right now, because you know, again, the idea is that Blade is right now a high-end product, and so we started with this really high-end product. We've now come down to you know, $195 to the airport, which is essentially called our $25,000 Mercedes. And we think it's easier to start with a higher brand and work your way down than with a lower end brand and work your way up. Uh, and that's where we'll, you know, why we think the brand will resonate with a detail. But right now there's no way to fly into New York City without either going into or around the, a Blade Lounge, which will eventually be a terminal. They're called lounges now, but they're slowly moving away from this kind of leisure market type place that's kind of high end to much more functional as it becomes much more of a commuting product. Uh, last couple from me, if, if we can, Rob. Um, I'm quite interested, you're a mentor at Techstars. Um, tell us a little bit about, you know, 
you do have a very different kind of perspective on things, you know, going back to this risk averse nature almost that you've kind of brought with you with regards to fundraising and things like that. Do you find that you're at odds with some of your fellow mentors when you're working within that kind of startup advice kind of community because you arguably do have a different perspective? Um, yeah, I think... I think I have been, you know, I don't really view it more of a tech stars thing, but even when I speak to other co-founders and such, you know, there was definitely, we did a series B where we raised $38 million and it was definitely, I would say, I want to call it pressure, but a Greek chorus of saying, why aren't you spending more money? Why aren't you, you know, pushing harder, grow, 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 uh, which I think is, you know, the pendulum has shifted a bit. Um, so that's something that I think definitely relates to, you know, our past. And I felt, you know, in the idea of unit economics, you know, the, you know, as we always say that, you know, we don't want to be in the business of, uh, you know, building canoes for $10 and selling them for eight, hoping to make it up on volume. Um, so the, that's something definitely I want to see at odds, but there are varying views on that. I think also one of the things that, people maybe have questioned, you know, I do believe that people leaving college, having two to four years of experience in a big company, learning financial analysis, learning how to write, which is, seems to be a little bit of a lost art that I see. <laughs> um, um, I think that could be, is much more, that is so important and can reduce the risk profile dramatically for people who want to go out and start companies. I mean, the idea of leaving college with a liberal arts education and just going, jumping headfirst into doing your own startup without having at least some generalist background of various disciplines such as marketing and finance and um, you know business in general, I think that's really difficult. You know what I mean? And obviously some people have done it brilliantly uh, probably more on the risk of her side, but I think that, you know, these are long journeys. And so, you know, I guess when you're my age, the idea, if I started a company at 22 versus 25, like to me, that's meaningless. Uh, yeah. so I think people should explore, uh, some of these opportunities where they can actually build, um, real strength in terms of their, uh, repertoire in terms of skill sets. You know, my, I, I never got an MBA. My MBA was at first Boston where I learned financial analysis and I learned how to value companies and I learned about P and L's uh, and basic business economics. Okay. Uh, this won't be the most hard hitting question you'll get, but uh, it is our last question of the, of this week's episode of the podcast. Uh, I'm curious, which is more terrifying? Is it starting a business like Blade or is it performing at Madison Square Gardens with Roger Waters and a ukulele? <laughs> That's a great question. I, I'd say in the moment, there is nothing more, there's nothing more terrifying than being on stage in Madison Square Garden and uh, being a, uh, an amateur ukuleleist. Uh, but uh, that, was, that, that is a moment I will never forget and I can never be more grateful uh, <laughs> to Roger for letting me enjoy two nights at Madison Square Garden with him uh, performing the wall. Great, thank you. Okay. <laughs> 
Thank you very much, uh, Rob, for joining us, uh, the co-founder or the founder and uh, CEO of Blade. Uh, really appreciate your time. Some really excellent insight there. So thanks again from uh, David and I. Great. Thank you for your time. Okay. And uh, thanks ever so much for everybody for tuning in. This is another episode of How I Got Here. That's Mozio and Focuswire's uh, weekly entrepreneur interviews with those behind innovation, transportation and startups. So uh, thank you very much to everybody for tuning in. Uh, thanks ever so much from David and I. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the How I Got Here podcast. We'll be back next week with more inside stories behind startups and innovation in travel and transportation. Check mozio.com slash move for a complete write-up of the highlights of every podcast with translations into five languages. And get your daily dose of news on the digital travel economy by subscribing to the newsletter at focuswire.com. See you next week.